I do want to say thanks again for the worship. Uh, I saw a few people, maybe it's allergy season, but a few people doing, you know, this and, and this. And, and uh, it was very sweet. <clears throat> very, very sweet. Um, this morning we're going to study a piece of revelation. Um, and, you know, when, when somebody asks you to preach, you say, okay, I'm going to preach revelation. You know, pick an easy book, do something fun. And um, so since... Since we aren't typically in Revelation, I haven't given a background on it, I want to say a couple things about the book before we get to the section we're going to study. Uh, the first is that uh, the first five words of the book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's telling us what it's about. It's primarily about Him. And um, I just mentioned that because often when we come and we hear a scripture, we hear a sermon, uh, what we do with it naturally is we say, okay, you've said some things. Now, what do I do? How do I apply that to my life? And that's not a bad habit, like wanting to do what God talks about. But there's another aspect of it that we miss, that God is simply revealing himself to us. And part of our relationship with him is getting to know him. And so, you know, if, if your best friend or your wife or somebody comes and tells you about their day, and your only reaction is, okay, how do I change my behavior in reaction to this. That's not, you know, 100% of what they're trying to communicate or accomplish. Like, it's just getting to know them and getting to understand them better. And um, so that's what Revelation primarily is. It's about Him. And then uh, the third verse of Revelation, just another comment on the book, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. That's going to be us. And who keep what is written in it. We always want God's blessing on our life. And he actually says there's a blessing associated with looking at this book. Um, so what we're actually going to study is in Revelation, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. And um, they were seven churches of that day. They weren't the seven most popular churches or the seven largest churches. Uh, they were, I believe, seven churches that sort of comprised a set of churches that was representative of what we would be like today and what the church has been like through history. So that you can go read these letters and you can find a letter really that applies to you and what's going on in your life. And a church can read these letters and say, you know, this letter really applies to our church life and how we act as a church. And... Um, and so I think that's how he chose the seven letters. Now, the way I chose this letter is not because I think it applies to this church specifically, but because it's the first of the seven. Um, I wanted to do all seven. It turns out we'd be here till three or four in the afternoon if we did that. And um, so we're going to do the first one. Now, the format of the letters, they're all similar. They start with Jesus describing himself to the church. And it's an important part of the letter because this book is about who Jesus is, and so his description to the church is something that church is in danger of forgetting about them, or about him. Like, it's something that they don't necessarily remember in a way they should about who Jesus is. And then there's going to be commendation, the sort of things that the church is doing really well, and correction, things that the church needs to change. And after that, there's an appeal to the listener to hear. Every church gets that. You need to listen to what this letter is saying. And the letters all end with a promise to anybody that's victorious or overcomes. Um, 
something that we need to be reminded about, about what God's done for us and what the end of all of this sort of travail on earth is going to be. So the letter to the Ephesians, we're going to read together. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to read it all together, and then we're going to go back through it and, and see what it's saying. And I'm going to pray. Because that's a, well, necessary. Father, um, you know how much I need you, and I forget how much I need you. And, um, and you know how much you made all this possible, and I forget sometimes and think that I make it possible. But you, you put all of this together. You brought wonderful worship. You brought people that love you here. And, um, like, put a school together that provides a place for us to worship you. And it's like you've done all of this, and we're so thankful for it. Um, and we just ask for you to continue doing and to bless this time studying your word together and getting to know your son and getting to know what he values, what's important to him, what's most important to you. And I just pray that it would go out onto our hearts and become a part of our lives. I pray for clear words teaching today. Um, pray for calm thoughts that are just simple and understandable. And um, most of all, we pray for your presence here and your blessing on all of it. We ask that in Jesus' name. All right, let's read Revelation uh, chapter 2 together. First seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, the first, the first verse, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The word angel, it just means messenger. And so angels, like heavenly angels, that are not, these aren't humans, their word for them, their name in the scripture, really is related to what they do. They're God's messengers. And um, sometimes, though, it, it means a human messenger. Uh, you can have the same word angel. It means messenger. It could be a human. Um, the spies in, that went in and spied and were housed by Rahab are referred to as messengers. Same, same word, angel. Um, so this word, we're not entirely sure what the angel of the church of Ephesus here is, but it's the messenger. It's whoever's taking this message to the church. And uh, Ephesus, think about Ephesus, a little bit of background on the city. Uh, it was in modern-day Turkey, so it's kind of on the west end of the Mediterranean there. And I'm sorry, east, right? Yeah, east, east end of the Mediterranean there. And um, it was, they had a port, and then they also had multiple trade roads that diverged from there out into Asia. So all of the money from the Mediterranean, or all the goods from the Mediterranean, would go 
towards Asia. They'd stop at Ephesus, go through that city, and then go out on one of these trade roads. And like anywhere that a lot of money or goods flow through, the people that live there find a way to add a tax or a tariff or a way of getting their hands on the money. And as a result, Ephesus was very wealthy. Uh, it was probably second only to Rome in the known world at the time this was written. Um, it was a center for pagan worship. It had this temple to Artemis or Diana. And um, it was the largest building in the world at the time, or in the known world at the time. And um, part of that worship, kind of two things associated with it that would impact this church. One was tons of idols and tons of idolaters. And when Paul went there, he spent three years at Ephesus establishing a church. When Paul went there and he, he's establishing the church, one of the um, people that creates the idols, excuse me, named Demetrius, he gathered some of his fellow idol makers, silversmiths, and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. That is, we make idols, that's how we make our money. But this guy, Paul, he's saying that we don't need idols. And Demetrius started a riot. And, um, you know, and I think over time it would have been the same thing, where you're preaching Christianity, that is a threat to the Temple of Diana, which is, or Artemis, which is this structure that we really care about, and it's a threat to our businesses. And so the church result, or that resulted in persecution for the church. And then the other thing about the pagan worship there that was not healthy for the church or is a danger to the church, tons of immorality associated with it. Part of the worship of Diana was uh, lewd acts, um, and there were people employed by the temple for that. So, um, so that's Ephesus. Now, Paul established the church, and then 40 years later, John is writing this letter to the church. So it's been some span of time that the church has existed um, since Paul was there, and that now John is writing what Jesus tells him to write to the church. So the words of the letter, we'll start with Jesus' introduction. Uh, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The thing we want to look at there is, is these lampstands. We're told in the last chapter that the lampstands refer to the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And what he's communicating, that he walks among them, he's in the midst of them, is that Jesus is very active and present in the churches. I think, um, you know, I think we felt, feel that here when we were worshiping. You know, felt that today, worshiping. There's the presence of God in our lives, the presence of God here uh, in the church, and he's reminding the church of Ephesus that he is active and in the midst of the church. And then he starts to commend them. He says, I know your works. And the idea of the word works there is the types of things you do. Right? It's, the, it's the outcomes, the, the exact activities. And then he follows that with your toil. And toil is how hard they're working. Uh, And in fact, this word means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Like you're breaking a sweat. You're working very hard. Um, And so Jesus commends them for those things, both doing the right things and working hard at them. And I think that's a rare combination, right? Um, I have, I can think of people I know that work really hard at things and they're just silly things. I can think of people who work at really good things, but they don't work very hard at them. And then that combination of working really hard at things that Jesus considers good, considers the right things. It's very rare. 
That's it's a, not a dime a dozen in, in the um, people of God. And then he says, and your patient endurance. Uh, the Greek word there is hupomone. And what it means is you're keeping on no matter what. And you're keeping on with a victorious attitude. So this church is not quitters, even if there was persecution and opposition. They are uh, persevering. There's patient endurance. Next, he commends them on how they cannot bear with those who are evil. And the first thing that says about them is simply that they're morally upright. They're not allowing evil in the church. And I think that has to be contrasted with the church at Corinth. You know, if you know the story, um, in Corinth, they write, Paul, they have, uh, there's a guy in the church who is sleeping with his stepmother. And it, what it looks like is that the church at Corinth says, look how loving we are and accepting we are. We're just letting this guy come to church. Now, aren't we great? And Paul's response is no. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You let that kind of immorality be open in the church, and it is going to infect everybody else in the church. And, and, and so that was Paul's, Paul's reaction was, hey, I judge that. You have, to, you have to kick him out. You have to make him choose between fellowship and his sin. And they did, and it looks like he, he um, actually chose fellowship. He was sort of restored to the church after that. Uh, the church at Ephesus, they were enacting church discipline in the sense that that kind of open sin, they'd say, hey, you've got to pick one of these things. Either you're following Jesus or you're not. You can't, you can't have both of those. Uh, so he commends them for that, they, uh, this morally upright. They're not bearing with those who are evil. And then his next commendation, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The word apostle means sent one. So, so it, it refers to a couple things in the scripture, and often when we read it, we think of the 12, right? You've got the 11 disciples, and they became apostles, and you've got Paul brought in as apostle after. And so refer to those 12. But the word at its root just means sent one. And so it could be translated, for example, missionary, somebody that's sent by God somewhere. And um, here, what's happening is people are showing up at the church and they're saying, I was sent by God. Uh, I think a really ridiculous example of somebody that will say that they've been sent by God. Somebody told a story once where they just really felt they were in Bible college and um, this girl walks into class and he feels that God has told him that he's supposed to marry her. So he goes to the girl and says, you know, God has told me I'm supposed to marry you. And uh, apparently her reply was, well, you're the fourth person today. <laughs> so, um, so clearly three and probably four of them were wrong. Um, now at this church, people were showing up. And I think this happens when you have a successful church. People show up and they say, God sent me. I'm supposed to be something in this church. I'm supposed to do something in this church. And what Jesus said was, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. And so it doesn't really matter what somebody says or what they initially look like. It matters long-term what fruit they bear from their life. And so this church, Jesus is commending them for taking a look at the lives of the people that came and um, said they were sent by God, and then 
for knowing correct doctrine well enough to say, actually, your life doesn't line up with what Jesus said or with what's in the scriptures. And, and sort of the, the same thing with, um, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of false doctrine will spread through a church surprisingly quickly. There was a, a year in Bible college and no, I was not one of the people that told the girl I was supposed to marry her. Um, there was a year in Bible college where I remember one guy getting disruptive. Uh, he had grabbed onto a particular doctrine and started sort of spreading it. And later in that year, I was talking to the, the dean, and he said that they'd eventually had to kick out 50 people. Um, and I'd, you know, I'd seen just the beginnings of it. One guy became disruptive. A few of his friends became disruptive. And... But it, it cost us, I mean, it wasn't a big school. There were 600 of us so, and that's about 8% of the population in a semester. So um, there's a lot to be said for uh, knowing correct doctrine. And when somebody comes to you and starts saying, well, God says this, I'm sent by God to tell you this, to line it up with what the scripture says, with what the Bible says. We're t- told to test all things. Told to test all things and hold fast to what is good. And... Um, Jesus is commending this church for doing that well. He continues commending them in verse 3. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Um, So he commends them again for hupomone, same word, uh, patient endurance, steadfast endurance. And then for doing it for his name's sake. I don't know about you. Um, I don't. It's really easy to do something good if other people are going to see it. And at its core, then, I'm really doing that for me. I'm doing it so that people see me as opposed to seeing God or seeing Jesus or seeing what God's like. And um, the Church of Ephesus receives this commendation from the Lord that. All of these things they've done, um, works, like doing the right things, toil, working really hard at them, not bearing with those who are evil, being morally upright, and um, then uh, testing those who call themselves apostles or not, being doctrinally sound and, and adhering strongly to these things um, with this perseverance. He says, you did all of that for me. And I, I, I love that praise that uh, they didn't do all of these things to be seen by the city around them or to, you know, have good press in the whatever kind of newspaper you had back then. I guess good word of mouth. But they were doing them for Jesus' sake. And that is, that is a commendable thing. Um, it's a rare thing, right, for us to do things solely for God's sake, solely for His glory, His praise. And, and so it's a, a wonderful commendation. He says, and you have not grown weary. It's been 40 years since that church was formed, and they have persevered this steadfast endurance. They have had that, or patient endurance. They've had that for 40 years. And it's a wonderful thing, you know. Uh, not to be negative, but a lot of times people start working hard and doing the right things, and then it lasts a week. I mean, as a little kid, you can do this for Christmas, right? Because Santa Claus is watching. And then once Christmas is over, you're like, okay, snowball, sister's head, go. And, and, 
And um, it's easy to be good with some end in sight, but they, they didn't have their eyes set on, I just have to be good until this. They, they sort of were saying, we're going to do these things for the Lord until I reach the other side of glory. And so it's, it's great commendation from the Lord for this church. Verse 4, Jesus continues, and he moves to correction. He says, but I have this against you. And it's, it's almost shocking because when you read the commendation, you think, well, do they have a satellite church I can attend? Like, what a church. You know, that's, that is above and beyond what we see in most churches uh, in America and in a decent amount of the world. Uh, what a church. Like, it's, and, and this isn't like, there are a lot of churches that people think are good. Like, oh, that's a great church. You know, I, I really love how charismatic the pastor is. But this is a church that Jesus says all these good things about. Like, it's heaven's opinion of what that church is like. And then he also has this opinion, though. Not opinion, fact. He says, but I have this against you. So this one thing that he's going to talk about is actually more important to him than all of the good things they're doing. Like it's, if, if you had a balance and you said, there's this, I have this against you, and there's all the good things over here, the this that's against them is, is actually more important than all the good things we just talked about. So the this, he, he goes on to describe it. He says it's that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The love you had at first. And the word abandon, it really just means to let go, to give up. Um, you, you sort of, you had it, you were holding on to it, and then you set it down and, and moved along. And um, what he, he doesn't say, he doesn't say they stopped loving him. Right, he could have said that. If, if that was the truth, that, if that was what had happened, he'd say, oh, they've stopped loving me. But he doesn't say that. He just says, the quality of your love has changed. The love you had at first, that's not the love you have for me anymore. You have a different love. And that first love can be thought of as like a betrothal love or a, um, an espousal love. That, that love like an early love in marriage, for example, where you're, you're all in in terms of uh, they're all you care about. They're all you care about spending time with. Um, they're all you really care about thinking about. You're just sitting in class and the teacher's like drawing math on the board and you're just thinking about the person, right? Um, they're all that your priorities are about. Like you have one thing that, that you maybe should do, but you could procrastinate on it. Like, oh, I will spend time with the person I love. Um, and and they just, they're first in every respect. And that's what this early love is like. Uh, God talks about his relationship in the Old Testament with Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And that was... God says, I had a, a love with you then where you were putting me first. I was what you were thinking about. You had this love relationship with you. And uh, what can happen to a relationship, what can happen in a marriage, for example, is 
Uh, the marriage can be civil. You still love each other. You're both working hard toward uh, mutual goals, um, you know, building the savings, things like that. And, and one day, you look, at, you, you look at the spouse and you say, I, I don't know what we've become. You know, I'm super busy. You're busy. We're going a thousand different directions. We're involved in only good things. Uh, we have possessions like we never had them before. We have, we have stuff. Um, but, but, you know, I want to go back to that time when we didn't have all that stuff, but it didn't matter because we had each other. You know, having each other was the important thing. And it's, you know, I don't know how we got here, but I want to go back to where we were less efficient, and less reserved, and less experienced, and more loving. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we don't, we don't marry somebody to put sheets on a bed um, or to track a budget or to raise children. I mean, those are good things, but you got married because you loved each other and you wanted to be together. You wanted to be close. Um, I mean, that's the person you're going to be closest to for the rest of your life, right? And this is kind of what Jesus is saying to this church in Ephesus. He didn't save them so they could fill pews or become ushers or be theologians. Um, he saved them because he was in love with them. And because of that, he values the relationship with them, that closeness, more than all the things we could do for him. It's, it's, it's kind of what we're like. We, we want to substitute our works and efforts instead of fellowship. Like it's, it's a little easier to build a set of checkboxes and keep them than to maintain a healthy, loving relationship. Um, but instead of busying ourselves for him, God just wants us to relax, spend time with him, love, fellowship with him. Like that's what is valuable to him. And, and, and that's, you know, we said that this book is primarily about him. What it reveals is, is that that's important to God. It's important to Jesus, the love relationship, more than all the things we do for him. Now, if we find ourselves in that state, and this, this church found itself in that state, a wonderful church in, in many, many regards. Um, if we find ourselves in that state, the question that would come to your mind, you say, what, what do we do? What is the response? How do I react? Um, and, and he's going to tell us what to do. He's communicated what's important to him. And I think that is the most important thing, knowing his heart, knowing how much he loves us and wants that relationship. But now he's going to say, this is the road back to that relationship because he wants to tell us how to get there. So he gives us three, um, three things to do in verse 5. First, we need to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. To remember it's, it's to bring to mind. You just sit there and think about what was it like. And you go back in your mind to when you were, um, when the relationship with him was that first love, when it was close, when when things were, when his priorities were to be um, with him and spend time with him. So that's step one. And it, it's probably worth mentioning, sometimes, sometimes we think of that first love as uh, unsustainable, 
right? I became a Christian. I loved the Lord. I was in his word all the time. But nobody can keep that up. And, um, and, and, and so, and, and maybe you do have some unsustainable pace, but, but the love of the early relationship sometimes gets cast out along with this idea that, oh, we're just becoming more mature. And God says that's not really what's happening. Um, really, you're, you're slipping away from that first love, and it's sort of, it, it's a word that he uses, fallen here. Um, it's a, a lower state than what man's best is. Man's best is um, that love relationship with the Lord, being close with him. So remember where we've fallen, and not in a negative, depressing way, but just that's where I was, and that's where Jesus would love for me to be again. He loves being there with me. I want to go back there. So thinking back on what that was like. And then repent. And the word repent just means to change your mind. That's the, the root of it. So priorities back to what they were in that early love. And then third, he says, do the works you did at first. The idea is just to go back and do the things that you did at the beginning. Like in the early relationship with God, what was the place of talking to him? What was the place of prayer? Like you need a parking place. And you just, hey Lord, I need a parking place. You know, and you're just like talking to him about everything. And um, in a place of hearing from him, spending time just listening, wanting to know what he has to say, wanting to read from his word, you know, reading chapters or books. And, um, what was the place of fellowship? You know, a church opens his doors, you're like, I'm going to be there. I want to be with God's people. I want to be with God. I want to worship him. Um, what was the place of, of purity? Like, not wanting to put anything between you and God, anything that disrupts the relationship. And the thing that you'll find is if you think about where you were, you do the remembering, and you change your mind about what's important, you do the repenting, and you just start doing these things, he didn't go anywhere. You'll find that the relationship is just waiting there for you. Like it's, it's restored quickly. Now, in a marriage, not every partner is uh, interested in what the other has to say. And so Jesus says, if not, if we're not going to hear him, he's going to give a warning. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And the idea is we're told that right, the lampstands are the churches, and Jesus walks in the midst of them. So if he takes one of the lampstands and moves it somewhere else, you now have Jesus here, midst of the six lampstands, and then their lampstand outside of his presence. And um, the warning really is that he's not going to stay in a loveless church. He's going to take it away from his presence. And it's, it's very much like the Garden of Eden when God's walking in the midst of the garden, and there's two trees there, and Adam can eat from the tree of life, or he can eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Got to reverse a couple words from earlier, but eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God has to remove Adam from the garden. But God walks in the midst of the garden, and Adam is now removed from the fullness of God's presence. And that's kind of the same warning here, just a removal from the fullness of God's presence. And um, I loved worship today. I loved the sense of God's presence in it today. Imagine 
just singing without that. And the song might be good, but, but it's, not, it's not the same thing. Something fundamentally is missing if the experience is not the presence of God involved in the worship of God and reading his word and your walk with him, talking with God. So, so that's the warning. Um, that's the warning. So he continues. He says, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but the, uh, the name has sort of two Greek words that form it. One is uh, Nikos, comes from Nike, or, yeah, victory. And then the other is uh, the word that we get laity from. And it looks like the deeds of the Nicolaitans are setting up a church hierarchy where the clergy is over the laity. And... Um, if you think about what Jesus came to accomplish, part of what he accomplished was um, getting rid of the priesthood, which went between man and God. Getting rid of the curtain that separated the holy of holies from where people could go. Breaking down the separation between the Father and his people. And so it looks like who the Nicolaitans are, and it looks like the reason Jesus hates their deeds is that it separates people from God. It tries to put things between them and um, and the Father. Verse 7, the encouragement to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think the reason he says this is that it's really up to me and up to you, each one of you individually, to take what he said in this letter to this church at Ephesus, but then apply it to our lives. Right? So all of us can hear it, and then we're responsible to hear it in a way that actually comes in and impacts us. Like that's, that's something that he's calling us to do. And then the promise at the end. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the Garden of Eden, the original creation had God walking in it and had Adam walking in it and there was a tree of life in the midst and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we know that Adam ate of the latter and ended up outside God's presence ended up really destroying man's fellowship with God um, uh, until Jesus came and restored it and the picture that Jesus is drawing their minds to is that what was lost shortly after creation by man's sin will be restored in the end by what Jesus has done and by just our relationship with him. So um, that's, that's something for us to look forward to is this fully restored creation, um, being in paradise with God, having the tree of life there which we can eat of and be there forever with him. Um, so in terms of of application. That's, that's the letter. That's, that's the sum of the letter and what it says. And you say, what do I take home from this? If there was one thing to take home from it, it is that um, if you have found religious activity to become more important than close relationship with the Father. That is backwards from Jesus' priorities. He wants 
the close relationship with you, the spending time with you, hearing you talk to him. Isn't that amazing that he wants us to talk to him? Like, what could we say of any value? And yet he, he wants that. Um, and he wants all of that first, more importantly than all the religious activity. The religious activity has a proper place. It is good. He commends them for it. But the relationship with him is the best thing. And sometimes in our lives, my mom used to say this. She'd say, um, good is the enemy of best. And, and it's so true because all this good religious activity had replaced or caused them to let go of that first love, that espousal love, that thing that was best. And so for our lives, if we find ourselves in that place, we need to follow his simple counsel of remembering what we had when we were close to him, changing our minds, repenting, and just going back to those first works with him. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making all things possible in the way you just work in every little detail to, to draw us to you and draw us to relationship with you. And, you know, we're probably, I don't know, I'm surprised how quick I am to move away from it. And I won't speak for everybody else, but just we pray for uh, your hand and your spirit and your presence in drawing us into that close relationship that you want with us so badly. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.